This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, could ancient viruses resurrect to wreak havoc on the modern world? Greg Fish joins us here on the Shift to chat about how a warming planet could reveal frozen zombie viruses. India made history by landing on the south pole of the moon and going for a drive. Andrew Ferreira has all the details on what the landing means for the future of space travel and how impressive it is based on their budget. And are you okay with free booze and no more Kleenex? Two unrelated stories, by the way. I feel like we should say that. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird Weird. things with Greg Fish. Now, normally Greg Fisher can listen online to the shift, but he can actually listen on the radio. He's not in California today. He's in Columbus, Ohio. Close by, close neighbor. Hey, Fish, you look closer. Well, you know, I I just wanted to get a little closer to the show and get a little closer to the fans or something Mm -hmm. of that nature. Yeah. You want to be a Canadian. I get it. That's fine. We're cool. Well, that's that's what Americans do. When we go overseas and we don't want any conflict, we just say we're Canadians. I know. It's terrible. You guys ruining it for all of us. The amount of people that put Canadian flags on their backpacks. Sorry. <sighs> Way to go, buddy. All right. Greg Fish is here, and we are talking about time travel today, Fish. I love this. Um, now, in this particular case, it's accidental time travelers. But before we get into the actual time travel, do you wish you could go back in time? Um, no, not really, because I feel like there's a lot of places if you go back in time, things are appreciably worse and less convenient and more problematic, Mm. especially depending on who you are. Mm. Very true. Very true. Would you want to go forward in time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to go forward in time um, just to see what just to see what happens. Uh, But knowing that it could turn out to be a disaster, too. Yeah, I mean, you could leap forward into nothingness and go, oops, the world did end. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason why post-apocalyptic movies are so interesting, too, because, hey, the world did end, but you get to build what comes next, potentially. That's the the allure. That's why we love those post-apocalyptic movies, because we can imagine ourselves building that next world. I have an agenda with these questions, by the way. Keep dancing with me. Thank you. Why shouldn't we go to the future, Greg Fish? So there's a couple of reasons why we shouldn't go to the future. And the most important one of them is that we are probably not going to fit in very easily. We're not going to be able to speak the languages that they're going to, that are going to emerge. We're not going to have any sort of money. The kind of skills that we have may be obsolete or completely unnecessary. We might have esoteric knowledge that may be of interest to some people who are researching the past, but definitely not for something in the future. And uh, it's really just going to be a huge luck of the draw. What you know, what's going to happen to us when we go back to a world where we're not really needed, we were not really planned, we were not really necessary. Why should we not go back in time? Because we know how things turn out. And because mm-hmm. we know how things turn out, we could affect the future, potentially. Again, mm-hmm. we did a whole thing on this. We don't know if that's even possible. Yep. But if we if we just kind of streamline this, we 
may know things before they happen and do something that we're not supposed to, like make huge bets on a particular event, win mm -hmm. a ton of money because we know that it's happening, and then have that potential to change the future potentially for the worse. So we agree that if we go backwards in time, you could change the future, yeah? It's possible, technically right. speaking. Possible, technically. So it, it's possible that if we went backwards in time and did things differently in our normal days or changed the way things happened, then it could change the outcome of all the things, yeah? Fair enough? Yes. Okay. This is the most amazing part of time travel conversation that blows my mind. We don't want to go to the future because we're not quite sure what's there, if we're going to understand it, and even if we belong. We don't want to go to the past because we're afraid to change the future, yet today we don't want to do anything. We, we're complacent. We're inactive. And if ever you wanted evidence that what we do today creates a future, we're afraid to go backwards in time and change the future, but we are afraid to do it today. So we look at our lives today, we look at everything that's around us today, and we go, no, I, I, can't, I can't make that kind of money or buy that house before I retire. Oh, I'm never going to retire at 60. I'm going to work till I'm 80. Oh, I'm, I could never be a poet. Oh, I could never learn how to play guitar. And yet, we use the exact opposite of the excuse to not change the future. So in fact, if you did it today, we have all agreed that it will change the future. So... Inaction is no longer an excuse in our lives. I use that as a philosophical uh, access point into this conversation. Take action today. If you believe that any of the movies like Back to the Future, whatever, that you could go back in time and change the outcome, why would you not try to change the outcome today? Because it's going to impact the future. Now, sometimes, much like this article of World of Weird Things Substack, which I'll share at shiftheads.ca, sometimes time travelers hitchhike their way through time and that's where we're going today fish yeah so today we are going to the tundra to permafrost that is currently starting to thaw and melt because of climate change and the nasty thing about it is that it contains a lot of ancient viruses some of them as old as a hundred thousand years based on various analysis and soil samples and there's a bit of a problem there because, well, we were around 100,000, 50,000 years ago. And those viruses may have infected us. They may have infected our livestock. They may have infected the animals that we ate. They may have infected animals from which they could have evolved to jump to us. It may have already happened numerous times in our history. We don't know. People 50, you know, 30, 50, 60,000 years ago didn't exactly keep precise records of exactly who was infected by what or have the molecular sequences ready to go. And the problem is also that there was a new study that looked at some of the viruses that were 50,000 years old, found in permafrost, thawed, and put in an environment where they could infect a cell. And they immediately came back to life and started attacking a cell, which means that if those viruses thaw and there's a host nearby, they're going to have absolutely no problem jumping onto that host and then spreading around the world, especially if that host is human or a farm animal that is going to be butchered and eaten. So that's a major problem, because if you didn't like living through a pandemic, you sure as hell aren't going to like living through pandemics again. 
So you're telling me that the sniffles from a woolly mammoth could wipe out civilization as we know it, humanity. So good news there. That is actually unlikely. The vast majority of those viruses that are going to thaw are probably not going to affect us. The problem is that because there may be many millions of different types of viruses, statistically, some of them are going to affect us in some way. And it's a huge unknown how, because some of them may be a plague that we never had recorded, or the records of it have vanished from history. And it's going to come back, and humans aren't that biologically different over you know, 20, 30,000 years. We've basically been pretty much the same anatomically speaking and genetically speaking for the last 300,000 years. So there's a pretty, we're a pretty easy target for these viruses because we're also probably don't really have immunity to them anymore because we don't have exposure to them anymore. The best case scenario there is that it may awaken some smallpox viruses and we already know what smallpox is. We already have vaccines for smallpox and but if it's some sort of like a early version of a black plague, we got nothing for it. We have no idea that it even exists and we'll be caught completely off guard. Well, today, though, is this unfair? Because today, I mean, we don't touch anything. We don't do anything. We don't we we hand sanitize everything always. So is it possible that even in today's world, we can't even ride an escalator and touch the handrail without catching a cold? Should we just mail it in now and and shut it down? Because we can't fight anything today, it seems. Well, the thing is, there's a very simple solution to that, which is stop polluting the crap out of the planet, let the permafrost stay frozen, and then we don't have to deal with this crap. Hmm. Well, it has melted and frozen and melted before. That part they know. And um, there are elements of it that are newly melted. Some have not melted as far as we have records of, you know, wouldn't this cycle of warm and cold that we've seen, um, you know, at least through history, like rings of the tree of ice, which they do measure, would that not be, you know, at least uh, appease you a little bit in knowing that maybe it could just freeze again before it kills off too many people? So the slight problem with that is that, Yes, there are cycles of thawing and freezing, which is perfectly normal. And it basically has to do with the orbital cycles of the Earth. They're called the Milankovitch cycles. And nowadays, with the tilt of the Earth and with the with the motion, about every 100,000 years, we can expect basically an ice age of some sort, uh, which is where you would have that thawing and melting. But the problem is we're doing this much faster than we're supposed to because you have something like... Um, a hundred thousand years of thawing and melting over a period of anywhere between five and ten and twenty thousand years. We're doing this in decades, which is is way too fast. It's way too it's way too unstable and it's way too destabilizing to that permafrost. It will eventually freeze, but the problem is if we keep pumping pollutants into the atmosphere, it's gonna be a lot tougher to freeze and it's going to melt a lot faster, which will make all of these viruses come out a lot faster. So there's always going to be that risk. There's always gonna be something we need to look at, but it, this is but if this is something where you get encounter every hundred years versus every six months, I would rather go with the hundred year version. 
Okay, so viruses. This sounds an awful lot like a, a movie. We've seen this before where a plane crashes or a, a spaceship crashes deep in um, Kazakhstan somewhere or Siberia, and then it freezes under the ice and ice goes and you know everything else. And then all of a sudden there's a mining expedition because someone's looking for gold. And then they hit something. They're like, we got gold. But it turns out it's Joe's space alien. Um, and then they release something in there that starts to grow and change and kill the earth the end box office smash yeah i mean that's pretty much it although in the real world what's probably going going to be more likely more likely to happen is they start getting sick they don't know what it is it's some sort of a virus that attacks the respiratory system or that attacks the heart or that attacks the brain um and people start kind of dropping dead until we figure out oh no it's a brand new virus we need to lock things down this is another pandemic we need to figure this out and then it happens again and then something else happens again and then something similar happens again still so that's really kind of kind of where the problem comes in mm -hmm. okay so now bugs get released in the atmosphere or into a deer how do we deal with it we're talking pandemic city again so in in some of those cases actually in a lot of those cases it may never ever affect us that's that's the thing i kind of want to uh want to be really clear about there's all of the there's millions of different types of viruses frozen there and out of those probably 999,990 are going to be completely irrelevant to us they're never going to make the jump to humans it's those last 10 that I would be really concerned about um, as with scientists. And it, it really kind of, it's it's one of those things where yes, those bugs are going to get released and this is going to happen. But if we can slow it down, if we can do things where we don't really have to deal with it, if we can limit our exposure to them, then that would be the most ideal case scenario because that's really the big the big issue. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what could get released. It could all be fine or it could all end horribly. And if we have a, a, a choice that would allow us to avoid finding that out, I, I would really prefer to not find out. I would really prefer to just keep it buried, keep it frozen, keep it far away from us and just really focus on okay what's going to come out in the future is there a better way to fight these kinds of different families of viruses with universal vaccines so we don't so we don't have to deal with these massive pandemics so we can lower the risk in the future and at the same time the same choice that would allow us not to deal with it would also make our air cleaner our water more drinkable our oceans safer and more full of fish, our lives longer and healthier. And that's kind of the route I feel that maybe we should really consider taking. Hmm. Okay, so um, that's nice, end of the world. Uh, but the, you know, here we are looking at it. I mean, uh, do we have any evidence this has happened yet? Yes, we do. We There are scientists who are going around studying this, and they're actually looking at what permafrost is melting. That's where they're collecting the viruses, and they're starting to analyze all those different types of viruses. And every time they go out, they find you know another 200, 500, 700, 1,200 
5,500 different types of viruses out there, and then they start testing them. Well, can they still infect cells? Can some of these parasites out there, are they are they just dormant or are they dead, frozen solid? And they keep finding, oh, no, all of this stuff is basically dormant. Um, the vast majority of these viruses are still ready to go and infect. The vast majority of these parasites will start reproducing as soon as you thaw them. Like this is this is not this is not great. So that's why they're raising these alarms. That's why they're doing these studies. They're basically saying that this is something that we're not really prepared for. This is not this is something we're not talking enough about. Um, mm. Because when we talk a lot of times when we talk about global warming and say, oh, you know, green energy and we need to cut carbon emissions. Uh, but there is more to that. There's other effects like refugee crises because countries that are not very stable are having droughts they're having famines people are fleeing and there's no system to help them so that's that's a major problem um another major problem is that we have these viruses being thawed out of permafrost another problem is that we have more intense storms that's that's something that we talk about but we don't seem to take it seriously because we say oh well you know we'll we'll clean some things up we'll build things a little better and it'll be fine but that's kind of the problem. We keep saying, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. It'll be fine. And these scientists are saying, how are you going to be fine with something that you don't even know that's coming out of permafrost now? Because every time we look, we find something horrible and something new. And then you also have a huge migrations of people. And then you also have a lot of convenient air travel. Like this is a perfect recipe for something to go horribly wrong if it does. Can we please not do this can we please prevent yeah, this i get i get that but i guess that i guess that i'm maybe i'm a little pragmatic at it I, i'm not uh diminishing your point i think your point is valid that um that you know they can't people need to be aware of the consequences of all the things um including just digging holes into the ground sometimes you find things that you really wish you hadn't found i mean there's there's all kinds of stuff there it, i don't think it gets overly complicated the catch is though is that unless i missed it i mean they haven't found anything yet and a recent history tells us we weren't even ready for a global flu, right? So how can you be prepared for something that you don't know what you don't know? And I mean, I guess I, it seems unfair to me to prepare um, that to prepare for something that you don't even that you don't don't even know that you don't even know, and expect others to get ready for it when we could even get ready for the other things that we didn't know. Well, that's that's true. So what they're so what scientists are basically saying is not let's prepare for this horrible thing, but it's more like you should know that this is a potential consequence. So if we have the choice not to do that, if we have a choice to prioritize not polluting the planet to the point that permafrost keeps melting, let's focus on that. Like they're they're more worried about prevention. They're more worried about keeping permafrost frozen because they're essentially saying there's no way that we can be prepared for what's going to come because we don't know what's going to come hmm. okay so how do you propose that we get ready for it then if this is the case i mean you know we everyone's getting a free gas mask we kind of went through that with the gold cold war well i you know i don't think anyone would wear it that's kind of the problem uh, <laughs> but what that's i a very good point but but what I would what I would say is I would just quote the scientists who are are so con concerned about this and say hey focus on investing in uh, in solar projects in uh, more uh, in cleaner projects uh, focus on making sure 
that uh, you are not pumping as much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Uh, focus on making sure that we are recycling as much as possible, that we actually have a sustainable, clean energy future. And then this problem would kind of more or less resolve itself. Yes, some permafrost will melt at this point. It's inevitable. But hopefully we can get off lightly without thawing too much of it and releasing too many viruses and creating too many chances for this to happen. So again, kind of kind of doing what we're doing now, but just with more effort and maybe uh, do some more have some more nuclear plants mm -hmm. uh, research into trying to get um, more you know modular nuclear batteries out there. just anything that we can do to have reliable, clean energy geothermal also is part of the equation but literally anything we can do to ensure a good clean steady energy future and a transition away from the things that are currently so bad for us that's what we should be focused on that's what we should be doing i always think of um in conversations like this i always think of glaciers right they often talk about glaciers in, um, you know, the glacier has receded and some of them have just gone away completely, uh, which is very sad. But I mean, they talk about glaciers receding and all those things. But I mean, glaciers had to move over the land as well. Now, to your point, you did claim already and say that has been evidenced, which I, I you know, have found myself that things seem to be changing faster than ever. And regardless of whether you like it or dislike it, the, the trend is the trend. The numbers are the numbers, is that there are things in areas of the world that are warming up in ways that we've never seen or research has never allowed us to um, have evidence of in uh, as far as we can tell. At the same time, though, I guess part of me is a believer of what's supposed to happen is supposed to happen. And... Uh, I know that if the belief system is that the, things are going to work out the way they're going to work out, I also say hope is also a terrible plan. Is there a part of you, and we're short on time, but is there a part of you that kind of makes the point where it says, you know, are we supposed to be fighting these viruses or were they frozen there for a reason for humanity or whoever else inhabits this earth to have to deal with it? So I would say that we don't, the, trying to guess the future is a fool's errand. Mm. And when it comes to a lot of the these green energy projects, a lot of these cleanup projects that we are talking about to stave off the consequences of global warming, to limit climate change and how much it impacts us um, globally, the absolute worst that can happen is we have cleaner water, cleaner air, less plastic in our bodies, less junk out there, healthier food, and better practice and better, more sustainable long-term practices. So even if bad things do happen, at least we can blunt them a little bit. Again, the, if the worst scenario is a cleaner, safer, more modern world, there's really no reason not to do it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it's a very good point. Although we'll have to leave it right there. I think the, the catch there for a debate for another day, though, is there are certain things that are proposed as solutions in this world which may bring less food, which may cause other people to die and um, the economics of the world changing and much larger conversation. But that also doesn't bring people clean water and doesn't bring people anything. I would love to see less plastics in the ocean. That's a big one for me. Um, but I don't know if these are the ways to get there. But 
the good news is, is that conversations like this is where it starts. And that's where we're going to have to leave it at this point. The article's fantastic. You can subscribe to a Substack and everything. It is shared at shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. Introduce yourself to Greg Fish. He's happy to say hi. And he's going to be back next Tuesday for more of the world of weird things. Um, because that's what we talk about. Thanks for being here, buddy. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Weird Science, Andrew C. Ferreira. Destination weddings is our conversation, Andrew. Is it safe to say that if you ever got married and had a destination wedding, it might be on the moon? I would never have a destination wedding, period. Tell me why. I don't have money. (laughs) I'll have one if everyone going will pay for it instead of me. Yeah. Well, you also don't have anybody you've chosen to marry yet either, as far as I know. Oh, I can just pull somebody in off Craigslist. Yeah, Craigslist. You know, who cares, right? Whatever. <laughs> but maybe it's if fine. you really like them, you're like, I'm going to like you more if there's palm trees. Oh, I hate, no, sunny weather, hot weather? No, God, no. I'd rather, Sunlight. If, if, if I'm going to have, like, any destination wedding, it's going to be in, like, one of those walk-in freezers in the back of a fast food joint. Then we can Very just good. pop out and get fast food because it's cheap. Nice. Andrew C. Ferrer is on the West Coast. Um, if ever somebody were to get married on the moon, we will hear about it because that's going to be somebody's plan somewhere. First one to oh. get married in space, which I believe oh, has not happened gonna yet. Happen. That's right? happen. First person you to get married it. on the moon. That hasn't happened yet, as far as we know. There's going to be um, so many obnoxious firsts. Right? Just like First person real to life. get married on a mountain on the moon. First person to get married in a crater on the moon. First person to get married floating 14 feet off the surface of the moon. It's just yeah. going to, it's never going to end. Yes. But then there's the first couple that gets divorced who got married on the moon. I hope they do it like back to back. Like I hope they like say their vows then immediately divorce. Yeah. That would I be really know. funny. No. Well, they funny do it for us. Ent- I they do it yeah. entirely to get their names in the record books. They actually care zero be... about each other. Twice they will get in there in that particular case, but then of course there's <laughs> going to be the first honeymooners in space. Oh yeah, eh? that's gonna be, that that is that's gonna be a big thing. I, That'll like, be a big. That will be a big thing. Twenty years. That's gonna be a big thing. Well, currently, uh, getting to the moon is left up to the space agencies at this point. But the space agency from India, they went for a little rip in their whip on the moon, Andrew. Yeah. So this, I've I I love what. Indians uh, space agency does because they in the same on the same wavelength that I always talk about how Japan punches above its weight um, India punches above its weight with like 150th the budget um, one of my favorite stats I saw uh, about and this is the Chandrayaan 3 mission it's India is the first ever country outside of the big ones you know the US the Soviet Union slash Russia and China uh, to land on the moon at all uh, Chandrayaan-3, which is the mission that just landed, is also the first ever mission uh, to land at the lunar south pole, and I'll talk about why that's important. Um, but I saw this really great little stat. The budget for this moon mission, like lander, rover, rocket, everything, is less than the entire budget for the movie Interstellar. Oh, no way. Which I love. Like, that's that's hilarious. 
I think that's actually quite interesting to think that it to pretend going to the moon costs well, interstellar costs more than to actually go there. And and of course there are realities about costs of labor and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, 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 I know. But I just think it's fantastic that there are organizations and groups that are able to pull together, you know, frankly, extremely impressive missions um, for, you know, with people say shoestring budget, this is literally shoestring budget. Like it is, you know, the amount of money they dumped into this, like if NASA could do half or a third of what they do with this amount of budget, holy smokes, like the world will, would be a vastly different place. Interesting. Um, All right. But they so tell don't... me what's, uh, tell me what they're up to. So the Chandrayaan mission um, Chandrayaan has actually been, this is the third iteration of this mission. Um, and the first one, of course, was uh, a lander. I believe the second one crashed uh, in trying to land on the moon. Uh, and the third one has, in the last few days, uh, not only successfully landed, but successfully deployed its little rover. Um, and I love it. Like, it, it's, it's, if you've seen, you can find a GIF of it, and you can find video of it, of the little rover rolling down off of the, uh, the lander onto the lunar surface. It's, it's adorable. It's just the cutest little thing. Um, and this is the first ever mission to land um, near the Lunar South Pole. Uh, and the reason that that's really important is because the Lunar South Pole region um, is where a lot of, you know, both public and private organizations and groups are looking to set up, uh, you know, the very first uh, moon settlements, like the very first, uh, you know, moon research bases, the very first moon habitats. Um, and the reason that we've chosen the South Pole of the Moon uh, is because we've actually found water ice. Um, I know it's kind of weird to think there's water ice on the Moon, but for until 2008, we didn't think that was a thing either. Mm. Uh, but guess what country discovered it? India. Um, the no Chandrayaan One mission, I believe, actually way back. And at this point, I believe Chandrayaan One launched on, I think it was a NASA mission, or it was it was a secondary payload to something. Um, but now, you know, India's doing their own thing. They can do what they want. Um, but it was actually way back when it was them who discovered that there was water ice at the bottom of these craters uh, on the lunar south pole. And the reason we want water ice, obviously, is because it's good to have water to drink. That's important. Um, but we can also take that water ice um, and we can break it up because water is just made out of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, we can split apart the molecule and get hydrogen and oxygen. And of course, we can breathe the oxygen. Um, and hydrogen and oxygen can be used as part of rocket fuel. So we can actually create rocket fuel on the moon just with water ice and like a few other catalysts which we can bring from the Earth. Um, and so the ability for um, in situ resource utilization, it's a big uh, space technology buzz phrase, in situ resource utilization, um, is huge. Because if we can create water, air, rocket fuel on the moon... We don't have to bring it there, which means we don't have to spend the time or money to bring it there. And time and money are the two biggest mitigating factors uh, when it comes to space exploration, right? So this is huge because not only now has another country kind of really entered the space game. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's not for a lack of it's not just, oh, good luck, or it's not just, you know, they got piggybacked or whatever. Um, you know, ISRO, the uh, India's uh, Space Administration, uh, has failed before to do this. And this is not, you know, beginner's luck or anything like this. They have tried and failed and they've made significant contributions um, and they've succeeded. And of course, in, the, in recent days, uh, Russia 
uh, tried to beat India to the moon. And I think it was very obvious that all they did was try to beat India um, because their mission Luna 25 uh, crashed. It was, it didn't really seem like, you know, the timing was a little bit too good in my opinion. I'm sure that Mm -hmm. it was its own mission, Um, but Russia really needs a PR win and they uh, cannot buy one if they tried. Um, And that was one of their chances to do so and didn't work. Um, But Russia's obviously landed on the moon successfully before uh, with landers and rovers. Uh, China is also a a gigantic player in space right now. The amount at which they are um, developing and rapidly iterating their technology uh, honestly puts every other space agency to shame. Now, say what you will about, you know, the Chinese space agency that is run by the, you know, a communist central government. So there is no option to say no (laughs) to things. You do them and you do them. Um, that being said, it's honestly really exciting to see a country that a lot of people don't really pay attention to, um, when it comes to space, um, making a big splash here. Uh, Japan recently has also tried, uh, and they've, re- and they recently had, a, a probe, I believe it, like, it thought that it was on the surface when it was actually like a few hundred feet off the surface. Uh, and then it cut its engines because it thought it was on the ground and then it fell and blew up. Um, they have another lander that was supposed to launch actually just earlier today. Um, but the mission was scrubbed because the weather wasn't good for launch. Um, Israel has tried and failed. Um, and very soon we're going to see private companies, you know, in, especially in, in, in concert with NASA, uh, start to send payloads to the lunar surface. Um, in fact, um, you know, the Artemis program, like this generation's Apollo, right? The actual astronaut carrying vehicle is going to be made by SpaceX. At least that's what it is right now. Mm. Um, So private industry has already kind of taken the baton from public administration in a lot of ways. Um, So it's kind of interesting to watch um, ISRO here, uh, again, India's NASA, you know, on a shoestring budget, absolutely knock it out of the park uh, with a so far absolutely, uh, you know, phenomenally successful uh, touchdown They've already released some preliminary information, um, video, GIFs, you know, everything that a social media manager could ever want. Um, hmm. So I'm I'm thrilled. It's excellent. To so, see. okay, why, like, is there enough water on the moon for that? Because it's not like it's going to be replenishing. It's not like there's a big glacier there, is it? I mean, to a point where going to the moon and using water to our favor is is self-sustaining? It. It's not like it's it's not it's certainly not uh, a renewable resource like it is on Earth, uh, but when you combine Chandrayaan one data, um, lunar reconnaissance orbiter data, um, and this is just one figure from the Planetary Society, um, they believe that both of the poles together have about six hundred million tons of water ice, and that's a low estimate apparently. Okay. Now, is that going to last forever? Absolutely not, right? In fact, I don't think it lasts very long. That being said, we don't really, I think, need a lot. Because once we're at the stage of being able to successfully and easily build things in orbit, right? Launch things from the moon, right? And that is going to be a very key part of, you know, whether or not you want, uh, you know, Mars missions, Venus missions, Jupiter, Saturn, etc. missions, Right. Uh, that's going to be a huge part of that is being able to launch from, say, lunar orbit or the surface of the moon. Because one of the biggest barriers to launch is literally the atmosphere, right? Yeah. It's thick. 
it's annoying um and it requires a whole lot of fuel to get through and so if we can launch from orbit where you don't have to deal with that we can cut down on the fuel and load up on the payload on the life support on other things um and i think that once you know humanity kind of demonstrates that it can actually do all this stuff in orbit that is when we really become uh an interplanetary species i think Hmm. Okay. So how much water is there on the moon, by the way? Sorry. Can I get the 600? What was it? Million tons. Okay. So I Googled while you said that how much water is in the great lakes. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's six quadrillion gallons. So I don't know how many gallons are in a ton. I don't know. I didn't, I barely. Seems like a lot of water. I don't know. It's a lot of water, but we're Um, not saying that the moon is, you know, flush with, you know, the delicious clear fluids. Right, we're saying that it has a little bit of water, um, and it has usable amounts. Right, that's basically it. Um, yeah, we can use it at least to kickstart, you know, lunar settlement, yeah. to kickstart lunar research, living, etc. Yeah, uh, why? Why is the uh, why is India able to do it on the cheap when nobody else is? Well, one of the things that we always have to realize is that. It's not just economies of scale, it's also literal economies, right? The cost of labor in India is frankly a lot lower than it is here. And the cost of labor makes up a gigantic portion of... Well, they can't outsource it anywhere, though. What is... Well, they don't need to, right? Yeah, they don't need Uh, to, I suppose, yeah. And not only that, um, but a lot of what the Indian Space uh, Research Organization, ISRO, does... um, And this is the thing about space is you can never separate it from politics. Um, You have to remember that India is in an almost literal arms race with both Pakistan, its neighbor, uh, and China to its north. And so India needs to see itself as a viable, it wants to be viable as, I don't want to say threat, because that's not what this is, but as a player in the game, right? As a player in the grand game of geopolitics and space. And so being able to do this successfully on a shoestring budget shows the world that, A, India can actually, you know, play with the big boys when it comes to this kind of stuff. And it's important to remember that the very first rockets were what? Intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? Right. The ability to deliver payloads to the moon and the delivery and the ability to deliver payloads to orbit indicate, you know, an ability to deliver war material to orbit or to the moon. And I'm not saying that's what India is going to do. I'm not saying that's what anyone is going to do. But this is something that military planners have to keep in mind. And this is something that geopoliticians keep in mind. Um, Space, in its original form, the Apollo missions, everything, all of that was a geopolitical arms race. Yeah. Right? It was very much a, a capitalism versus communism showdown. What is the more efficient system? What gets people to the moon first? And of course, in the end, um, you know, it was capitalism that got people on the ground, but it was communism that got the first pictures from Venus. It was communism that got the first actual robots to the ground on the moon. Um, and so who won the space race is kind of measured in how do you define what winning the space race was. Um, but again, I you know, when it comes to space and everything launched by countries, it's it would be remiss of me to not highlight the fact that especially in in today's world, we see what's been happening. Um, In a lot of ways, as much as we try to distance space 
from geopolitics. And I feel like, you know, things like the International Space Station and overall, you know, space flight has done fairly well at this. Um, but at its core, you can't deny that. Um, and so being able to flex their muscle like this is, is great for India. And it's great for the government there. Um, it's great for Narendra Modi's uh, government. Um, and really, you know, you think about the political approval that, you know, in the U.S. you saw um, with the Apollo missions, uh, with the shuttle missions, even though they were, you know, at times fraught with danger and tragedy. Um, space is a fantastic, you know, political rallying cry. Um, and we're only going to see that intensify as this brand new space race uh, continues. Yeah, uh, this is fascinating stuff, but cool, though. Hey, Andrew, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's a, no, it's awesome. a very, very large country with a small space group. And and there they are going for a drive. Pretty cool. No, and they're they're killing it, honestly. And it, it's it's great to see at the end of the day, the more competition there is uh, in the space sector, uh, the better, you know, and sooner that all of that money and research will pay off down here on the ground. Um, yeah, cool. So I'm it. all for it. Andrew C. Ferreira, India makes it to space. They're going for a drive. There's some of the reasons why. And in fact, from our podcast last week, we did have some conversations around space law. So you might want to check out our Shift Daily podcast as well. Andrew, thank you for being here, brother. Yeah, always. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with some stories to make you ponder? Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Are you okay with Kleenex? I like the Kleenex. I think it comes in handy. I think that. It's a pretty big deal, like Q-tips, when your name of your business is like the go-to name for all of the industry. Now, some people carry Kleenex around all the time. Demi? Um, I don't carry it, but I love it. I have very sensitive skin, so Kleenex is like my, my go-to. It's your jam, is it? Yeah, it's my jam. I always jam. have a box of Kleenex at home. Hmm. Mm. Uh, not anymore, it would appear. No. I don't know if you heard this story, but Kleenex is leaving. You're going to have to wipe your tears away with a brand new set of kind of tissues, Demi. Because Kleenex will soon be pulled off of Canadian shelves forever. You can't control everything that comes your way. But you can be ready. For whatever life throws at you, grab Kleenex. Grab a Kleenex. You can't. At least not for long. Uh, grabbing Kleenexes won't be so simple in any of Canada soon, by the way. The maker of the iconic brand told Global News on Friday it's made the decision to pull its tissues out of the Canadian market. No more Kleenex. Todd Fisher, Kimberly Clark, Canadian Vice President and General Manager, said in a statement, its Kleenex business has been faced with unique complexities in Canada. Uh, 
Yeah, I think I, we can read between the lines on that one. Fisher added that the decision to pull Kleenex tissues from Canada will allow Kimberly Clark, the company that owns it, to shift its resources to focus on its other brands in Canada and meet the needs of consumers with continued innovation and value. Somebody was paid a lot of money to write that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Decision to move the product was made this month. The spokesperson said it's unclear how many Kleenex tissue products remain available for purchase in Canadian stores. Other Kimberly Clark products remain available for purchase. Kleenex professional facial products, Kleenex consumer brand hand towels will remain in the Canadian market as well as Kimberly Clark brands, including Cottonelle, Viva, U by Kotex, Poise, Depend, Huggies, Pull Ups, and Good Nights. What does, what does that make you think of? Like when, when they're willing to pull, like Kleenex of all the things. I mean, that's probably good business, right? You, Easy. Well, I, I don't see how it's bad business. Like tissue, everyone buys Kleenex. Do they not? I would think so. For the most yeah. part, it's kind of the go-to. I mean, everybody, uh, how many people say, pass the tissue? You go for Kleenex. That's know. what you look how for. How many people say, pass the Kleenex? I would say everybody, don't they? Oh, really? I just yeah. think you grab Jonathan, it. what do you say? Pass the Kleenex, pass the tissue? I say tissue. Do you really? Yeah, I say tissue, yeah. That's very fancy of you. <laughs> Kleenex or tissue, 877-399-9898. See, for me, it's like, hey, do you have any Kleenex? Just like you would say, hey, do you have any Q-tips? I don't say, pardon me, do you have any cotton swabs? <laughs> I usually just say, do you have any toilet paper? So right. I'm not fancy. Not fancy. So, but I mean, how hard is it to do business when your product is that simple? It's, I don't know. it's paper leftovers that have been put together into really soft tissue in a box. I know. I don't know what your complexities are, but it doesn't sound like a complex business to me. Right? Mm. It sounds like the cost of doing business in Canada is up. And mm. I don't know that for sure, but, um, it sounds to me like, it's just not feasible with those margins on that item or whatever to to do business in Canada, which I'm curious about. So we're going to try to dig into that this week here on The Shift. I want to learn more. I want to learn why we're hearing more and more of these companies are leaving Canada. Is it really because of, you know, infrastructure, cost of doing business, trucking, all these things? Or is um, something else going on with um, the taxes on business, everything else? Or if these companies are just trying to strong arm the government, because what we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing some of these companies strong arm the government and they're getting what they want. They're getting big, bold factories and all these things with tax breaks. And I'm curious to, to know, is that really what's happening here? I don't know. So we're going to dig into that this week and try to figure it out. Okay, Demi, then this one, I think I know the answer to. Are you okay with free booze? No, I would never want free booze. Come on. <laughs> I would take any kind of free booze, but I would prefer it to be of the wine variety. Right. Yeah, I'm not okay with free booze if it's bad booze. I mean, I do yeah. like nice booze. But I, I would stomach even some cheaper booze for, you know, free? free. Yeah, like your tolerance changes, right? Like your standards really change if it's free. They do. If you're not paying anything, you know, when you have like a cheap wine and you're like, well, it was $2. It was not bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You think of your, your house, like you have, well, I have standards of where we like to live and what kind of place we live in all that stuff. Could you tolerate it if someone was like, yeah, but you could live here for free. 
I'd be like, yeah, I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the most part. It, like, it even takes care of your vanity when someone comes over and you're like, hey, come on in. Excuse the mess. That's what we'll say, right? Like, oh, I haven't had a chance to do the dishes. You'd be like, come on in. Hey, it's free. Right? Like, you would use that as your excuse. <laughs> you right? would, yeah. I would. Uh, free booze has consequences, like getting you absolutely smashed, drunk. One time, Orson Welles got accidentally drunk while filming a commercial for champagne. Turn camera. Marks. 102, take one. With overlap, action, please. Action, Orson, please. Did you just do anything? No, it's... A, sorry, cut. Yeah, rolling. 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. Inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So, Paul Masson. 102, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. I love that. <laughs> when I worked at a rock station in the 90s, we used to do like these tequila Thursdays, tequila Tuesdays, maybe. And um, there was lots of times my coworkers were in the bathroom vomiting by like 730 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But like those oh. were the days back then in radio. We used to have a keg tapped in the studio on St. Patrick's Day. What? Yeah. Yeah, just drinking beer. Everyone's around on the air. I mean, uh -huh. I think insurance was different back then. <laughs> Some things you can't really do anymore. No. That's probably one of them. Now, Mr. Orson had a uh, lots of booze at his disposal that day, and he took full care of it. Now, today, Washington residents have done the same thing. The Washington State Patrol said an off-ramp roundabout was closed when a tanker truck overturned and spilled red wine across the roadway. Now, that's Demi's kind of crash. The uh, What kind of red wine do you like? Oh, I'm not fussy. Oh, really? I'll drink most red wines, but my my favorite, if I'm being fancy, is a Bordeaux. Ooh, that is fancy. Yeah. Zinfandel? Do you ever try drink Zinfandel? No, I'm not. You should drink Zinfandel. No. Zinfandel is very bold. It's um, it's it's often misunderstood as the white Zinfandel or the rosé, but it's actually mm -hmm. the Zinfandel that makes that. It's just this big bold red makes your mouth just flavor i love zinfandels mm -hmm. deer valley zinfandel is the kind it's expensive it's like 130 bucks but it'll blow your mind awesome Seriously. it's going on my list all right uh you thought about you thought it was trashy to drink wine from a box try drinking it from a tanker truck the trailer leaked thousands of liters of red wine across the roadway no other vehicles were involved in the incident although some white ones turned red the driver was treated for some minor injuries no word on what happened to the wine well, people probably ran away with it. I would say, right? Like people with oh, buckets yeah. trying to fill up. Yeah, I would not be too proud to get in on the. I would be going all for it. You can't salvage it; it's already gone. They can't take right? it. Exactly. Don't waste it. It's like if money's on the on the highway. I will be a guy yeah. with a box picking it up. Yeah. I'm not too shy. I'm not too proud to to have a, a no. five gallon bucket. Me either. <laughs> Tap in the tanker truck. 
If it were cider, though, look out. Oh, yeah. Get out of my way. I love that. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 